In this episode of the Constructing Differences podcast, I'm interviewing Bess Williamson. Bess Williamson is a historian of design and material culture with a particular interest in social and political concerns in design. She is currently an associate professor of art history, theory, and criticism at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where she teaches a range of design history courses. Thank you, Bess, so much for speaking with me today. To begin, would you like to tell me about yourself and a little bit about your work? Um, Sure. I'm an associate professor at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. I'm in the art history department, but my field is in the history of design and history of technology. And I, for the last 15 years or so, have been studying the sort of interactions between disability and design, most focused on the U.S. in the last um, half century or so. Uh, my book, Accessible America, um, uh, documents and analyzes the emergence of access as an issue in American design, you know, really uh, tracking the way that disability emerged as a public issue, right? Of course, disability has always existed, exists in every you know human community, but the call for accommodation to be something that is on the public, right, that it should be expected and actually is defined as a civil right, um, is a, a product of the mid 20th century. So I sort of track how that emerged from more or less nothing in the architectural world to being an acknowledged issue and then um, kind of the legal and policy and activist contributions to that as well as responses, both creative and political over the last uh, couple of decades as well. Great. Yeah, so I actually came across your work when I read your essay, Electric Moms and Quad Drivers. I think it was written in 2012. And I really thought it was interesting, the technology you spoke about there. Um, So I wonder, how do you think that race, uh, gender, and economic lines cross in the private spheres of disability and the development of technologies for disability? Yeah, so I'm glad you um, saw that article. And you know, a lot of that material is in the book as well. And I was fortunate to have, you know, feedback both from that work and other parts to bring out race and gender more explicitly in the book. You know, as you say in the question that I think in the private realm in particular is when, um, well, I should say everywhere, but the issue of private space is so weighted with issues of race, gender, and class in the U.S., especially in that post-war period, right? When the U.S. government gets like massively involved in the production of a particular kind of sort of heteronormative single family housing, right, in the sort of the suburban expansion of the post-war. And so I was able to kind of link in this documentation of everyday life for disabled people who were able to live at home during this time period um, with that history of kind of the development of the stereotypical kind of American single-family household, the ways in which people were using technology both to kind of create access that wasn't built into those kinds of houses and communities, but also ways in which access sort of allowed disabled people to integrate into that ideal. So especially for white men, particularly white men who were veterans, there's this kind of idea that they deserve to participate in this dream as well. And so the government sort of earliest involvement in funding forms of what we would call accessible design today came through kind of the effort to create that um, kind of integration for disabled veterans that they, you know, deserve to be not just sort of physically rehabilitated, but socially rehabilitated as men, um, as husbands and fathers, 
uh, as homeowners. So the um, attention to the automobile and to the house both sort of uh, factor in with that kind of society-wide effort to to kind of create this particular ideal. And it's a kind of double bind for many disabled people who both are sort of promised that idea and also know they can never quite um, fit into that sort of normative ideal of what the you know, embodied resident of the single family house might look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, I recall you write a lot about the access on the road, and I think it's really interesting how you write about automobility and how it gives people the chance to move freely past uh, street level barriers, um, such as steps and curbs, but then creates new barriers that require customization. So for example, like the steering knob, my mom actually uses one of those for driving. And we talk about how it's kind of related to driving a tractor and Mm. there's like dangers that come with that as well, I guess, for accidents. So what are your thoughts on this continued innovation? It's like this kind of simultaneous innovation that overcomes barriers, but then creates other barriers. I always think when I'm like discussing access, like what is access to, right? What's on the other side of that barrier? Um, Is it, you know, automobility? Like the car was really a way to kind of get around when there was no accessible public transportation, there was no street level access, right? So literally just driving by rather than, you know, dealing with the sidewalk as a as a form of barrier. But it also, you know, means accessing aspects of society that might be closed on the basis of race and gender. And I really have to I'll, um, refer to the work of Amy Hamry. I don't know if you've tied their work mm-hmm. into yeah your project it was like but amy like so well points out in their book that building access right that the sites of research around accessibility in the mid-20th century were exactly the sites that were also racially segregated so the house transportation university education so i really see the automobile and then later arguments around public transportation as kind of fitting in with that right so we could tie like Automobility also to, you know, histories of things like the Green Book that provided alternative routes for Black drivers to kind of find safety on the road. So some people are using that automobility to, you know, opt out of systems that would be much more constraining to them, you know, being able to drive your own car as opposed to being, well, stuck in your own house or being sort of trucked around by very difficult medicalized systems like paratransit. So I think that there's absolutely, as you say, sort of like expanding a barrier, but that barrier itself, you know, is sort of the product of of other kind of constraints. Um, and the individual car, like, I don't know, there's so much to say, right, about the, mm-hmm. the kind of mobility that an individual car provides you. It's sort of a sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, it's built into this sort of unsustainable system of highway life in the U.S. Um, and also, you know, isn't available to everyone, you know, simply based on cost. Um, uh, And so later in my book, I talk about how public transportation became this like really hot and sort of controversial subject later in the 20th century. And I think a lot of that has to do with the kinds of demographics that are likely to ride public transportation are often poor, um, racially minoritized, you know, urban. And that was a much less like appealing group to provide technology to than the individual car driver. I think that's really interesting. And you speak about education, and I'm wondering about your education and how, I know you talk about your role as a professor at the School of Art Institute of Chicago, but how was your education different from the methods of teaching that you implement now? And maybe how do you approach that? So, you know, when I 
sort of finished my research work of my uh, graduate work and became a faculty member, I, you know, I was obviously aware of disability rights as a significant issue within college education, but the kinds of barriers that we talk about in accessible teaching are quite different, right? I mean, you know, we're working in a reality where many of our campuses are at least ADA compliant. They may not be accessible in a broader sense or inclusive, but, you know, in many cases, we're addressing student disability issues that are largely invisible, right? The, the largest segment of disabled students that are coming to our disability services offices these days are likely to have what we call invisible disabilities, right? Learning disabilities, psychological, psychiatric kind of um, disabilities, cognitive, you know, neurodiversities, and so on. So it's a different set of methods, but I think there are a lot of alignments. First of all, in terms of sort of universal design, right? That if we design addressing those populations, we tend to open up a wide range of deeper design barriers in terms of our teaching. So, you know, we're confronting that so much in a contemporary sense with our virtual teaching, you know, to think of the kinds of participation that we're opening up, you know, at the same time, obviously this remote teaching has come with a, a whole host of problems, but it has opened up the classroom. You know, the example that I always use is I have had next to like no attendance issues with my students because they can roll out of bed or not even roll out of right? They can log in from bed, a whole host of barriers that come with just getting to the campus and an urban um, campus are gone. So to think about what range of issues we're addressing there. But I think even, you know, in a, in a deeper sense, when we think about, you know, who gets to go to college, right? And who gets to complete college? There are a wide range of disability issues that may have really not been addressed in higher education in particular. And I think particularly around mental health, especially at many elite schools, students who have mental health issues are often encouraged to take leave or drop out rather than like take modified schedules or seek various forms of accommodation. And to think about, you know, what challenges to our structure of university education might come if we really, you know, aim to uh, have students complete their college education rather than this sort of sense that they should kind of basically go away or take time off. So those are issues that I have gotten into that are really not addressed by the physical space necessarily, but I think that are are linked, but in ways that that can be much more complex, right? More challenging and maybe not visible. Like they really aren't a quick fix. You can't just like change the door, mm -hmm. right? Change the entranceway, much as that project itself has been challenging. So that's been a new area of research and, and uh, conversation in particular sort of among college faculty in the last you know decade or so. Yeah. Have you had encounters with kind of these invisible, very complex um, problems that we face maybe in, on an individual basis? How would you approach an individual problem that maybe is addressed by a student where they have some kind of barrier that they're facing? Well, you know, I think that the biggest, you know, lessons that we learn from the disability rights, disability justice movements are, you know, the idea of the social model of disability, right, which needs addressing, needs complexity, needs interrelational analysis, but basically the premise that a disability is not a burden, is not a problem that needs to be fixed, mm -hmm. right, or overcome, but instead is part of, you know, human diversity and may also point to broader inequities in society in terms of access. And so to understand, you know, I just think there's a huge amount of stigma when, you know, 
early in my teaching, I sat with like a student group of self-identified disabled students. And I was like, well, what do you think are like some of the like key strategies? You know, what are some of the best cases that your faculty have brought in that would really help a lot of students? And so many of them answered. The biggest one is just that when we present like the letter or the request for accommodations, not to react negatively. So it's like, at literally the first encounter of disclosure is where there's so much stigma and the students were sort of, you know, very emotionally moved by this encounter that it could either be positive or in most cases was negative. So just think of social stigma as like one major barrier. And they know there's so many, and there are what I think are fairly quick fixes, like just adding a statement in that's of sort of a positive, you know, inclusive uh, tone on a syllabus, right, that lets students know. I find students really read that, you know, who are thinking they might have an accommodation to ask for or a concern about the class, they look at that part. And so if if instead of saying, well, you know, in order to obtain accommodations, like go to this office and make sure that you've been documented, instead say, I want to make this class work for you. Mm-hmm. So things like that and just openly discussing it for everyone. I think also another thing that's often overlooked is that often college students are going through a process of discovery. They might not know what their identity is in relationship to disability. So rather than assuming like, oh, before you walk into my classroom, you need to have your paperwork involved. You need to know what you need instead to make it a conversation. So those are all really great tricks and great resources out there. But it really deeply, it takes a level of literacy that is not very widely you know, available. We're not trained as professors on sort of addressing these issues and society-wide, right? As we have diversity conversations, disability is often not part of that conversation. Your project is so great in that it's really bringing together multiple issues, right? Rather than being like, how do we address disability as the standalone? Mm-hmm. All people with disabilities are experiencing disability through the intersections with their other identities. And so to isolate it is really problematic. So I think just some basic literacy on the part of faculty, I think that has increased a lot in the last few years, but still a long way to go. Um, and then, you know, there a, a sense of openness, right? A sense of kind of flexibility in teaching. I think so many approaches to college teaching are rooted in a very old sort of outdated notion of like what it requires to do research in architecture school in particular, that you need to like be on site to do all architectural work and that you need to stay up all night and like burn out and then be ripped apart by your faculty the next day is a part of architectural culture that is extremely uh, ableist and provides a lot of barriers. Is it really the reason why we don't have that many disabled architects? I think environments that create these barriers um, to participation in the first place. What you speak about in terms of individual accommodation and like writing a note on syllabi is something that I've experienced a lot um, in speaking with students and faculty and that struggle against the social stigma of disability. So as a student, I've worked against power dynamics of faculty and also with the institution of the university. But maybe as a faculty, what is your approach with um, dealing with ideas of productivity, success in the academic um, realm when there is that idea of accommodation and individual modes of working. Such a, such a key issue, I, I think, to think about exactly is like this wrong, this question of productivity of like, what are expectations? But I think also like, how, you know, our expectations of both productivity and process, right? What is the timeline or the space or sort of the method through which you perform, you know, what, in an assignment? Where are the realms of flexibility? And I think, you know, this is 
something that I should say is really challenging for faculty because they're setting up assignments. They're trying to squeeze all into a semester and into a space. Um, and so encouraging, you know, a kind of conversation about things like timelines, you know, one of the most common accommodations that students bring to me is flexibility on deadlines. And there is no sort of completely open-ended flexibility or else we wouldn't be able to keep together as a class, right? To discuss each other's work. And so that can be challenging. But if we set up certain guidelines, I always say to students, it's like, if you need a, a couple of extra days, an extra day or two, just email me, no problem, right? Chances are I can give you a couple extra days. I'm a faculty member. I know my own schedule. I know that I'm going to get 40 papers. I can't read them all that same day, right? So like if 10 of them come two days later, it's really not a big deal. And I have found that invitation to drastically reduce the number of students who just never turn that assignment in. Like when I first taught, I would sometimes have at the end of the semester, these students who, you know, got so caught up in the end of the semester or whatever was going on, and then they just never turned their paper in. So then I, you know, I failed them then letting them know if you ask you're likely to get a little bit of extra time you know and to just make that a ground rule for everyone sort of you know opens up the reality that we all live with i mean i would love to hear from a faculty member who's never gone over a deadline by a couple of days right or a week like or a year and you know in terms of like book publication um so this is preparing us for the the real world right is understanding that if you ask and are direct about your needs you're likely to be able to work within, you know, various parameters. So a lot of it is like working together and really thinking through, as I said before, of like, what are we testing you on? The art history lecture. Are we testing you on your ability to sit in a dark room for three hours and watch slides? Like, is that the requirement? Or, you know, are there other formats? Or can we even just recognize that that format is a real challenge for a lot of students? Not to mention it's their first introduction to art history. Like what message does that give them? So, you know, I think a lot of it for me is about sort of trying to break down what is the requirement as somewhat separate from how do you fulfill that requirement, you know, in terms of like format, you know, faculty who are like insistent on students printing things out, all that to me feels very outdated. I should say for some faculty that may be necessary for their work style, but they, you know, to be clear to, we're not out to get students. And I think sometimes that requires faculty to kind of work through what they may have gone through in school. Did they really struggle? And so they feel like students should struggle in the same way. Mm. What if we got rid of that notion? Instead, we were really hoping for students to be successful. I think most faculty deep down, but that's what they really want. So those are sort of some of the issues. I do think there are some educational models out there that are even, you know, that are much more radical that go far beyond the levels of access that I have been able to provide my students within, you know, uh, the college curriculum. All of the work we're doing now with like asynchronous work, mm -hmm. different timelines, you know, not working on one semester, you know, timeline to thinking outside of those realms is another, you know, sort of level of thinking through access that I think is possible. You know, one of the, some of the strictures that we work within are, you know, the university's timeline, but also things like, you know, professional certification. So the, you know, National Architectural Accreditation Board, you know, yeah. requires certain timelines and certain requirements. You know, I think that those are some of the institutional level barriers also that faculty may not be able to get away from. So sometimes it's required to do work on the institutional level to clarify or in many cases alter 
requirements so that they can be more flexible at the classroom level. But uh, there's a lot that individual faculty, I think, can do within their classrooms as well. What are the barriers that you might face in your work and what criticisms have you received and how do you respond to those? Well, that's a good question. And when you ask that question, you know, one of the things it gets into is like my own disability identity. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say that my, my own disability identity has changed as I've done this work. Mm-hmm. That I'm not disabled, uh, physically disabled, but later in my academic life was diagnosed with ADD, ADHD. Very common for women to be diagnosed with later in life. Um, and all of a sudden it opened <laughs> like, whoa, oh, this is why I often you know, had challenges that I recognized my fellow graduate students and fellow faculty weren't having. That is like fairly easy for me to disclose. And the more I do disclose to students, the better success I have, I think, in creating an inclusive environment and destigmatizing for myself. But I would say I, you know, um, it was easier to disclose after I had tenure. And faculty disclosure around disability is very challenging. You know, obviously for some faculty, there's no choice, right? If you have a visible disability, people know right now they may form all kinds of assumptions that may be inaccurate but you know uh, there's a tremendous amount of stigma around learning disability and in particular around mental illness among faculty and so there's a great fear that if we disclose that we won't keep our jobs Um, and so you know that creates a barrier to just conversation about what you need what working environments work best, what kinds of accommodation you have. And this is a a whole topic in itself, but there's a wonderful study that was done a few years ago by a few faculty members, including Margaret Price and Stephanie Kirschbaum about faculty with disabilities and kind of what they need. And luckily it provides some very clear institutional guidelines and best practices, but it also raises the issue of, you know, some disabilities are unaccommodatable and, you know, what are we trying to sort of fit into the profile of faculty. So some of the barriers I've faced are just sort of, you know, the same stigmas, but in a practical sense, you know, workflow, deadlines, expectations, you know, just getting the work done are at times in my life, very challenging, the issue of productivity. And I can't say I've discovered what accommodation could have made that significantly easier for me. The other just sort of broader barriers, I think, in terms of social and institutional attitudes is, again, this issue of um, disabilities frequently not part of the diversity conversation that's happening in so many of our institutions and therefore not valued as a perspective within diversity. Um, And, you know, a host of problems with that in terms of just people not being recognized as part of the conversation. But Institutionally, having all conversation about disability happen within a medical and individual social services model, like at most universities, all disability conversations happen in like student services, um, student accommodation, or here at SAIC, it's housed within our wellness and counseling center, you know, is an adherence to the medical model right? Your disability is your individual student status issue that needs to be resolved through these processes. Not it's at the core of your creative and intellectual development. And so that we're seeing new developments like here in Chicago at the University of Illinois in Chicago. I know Duke University and UC Berkeley have centers that are disability focused that are cultural centers, not services centers, you know, that focus on experience and expression and ultimately a sort of positive contribution in Mm -hmm. this community. 
Um, and so that's, I think, another barrier is sort of extracting the conversation out of the rehabilitation, student services, legalistic kind of conversations that happen into a cultural and political potentially conversation. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that extraction of the service to culture jargon and use of language and how that makes a huge difference for a lot of individuals. And I guess just making that differentiation of what it actually means to have disability. So bringing it back, I guess, into the public realm. Um, so what role do you think that designers have in responding to disability and um, approaching disability? And do we have a responsibility? Mm. So, you know, I um, began this project in graduate school with kind of the observation that disability has a distinctive relationship to design, right? That just like disability has a distinctive relationship to medicine and administrative social service fields, right? That these professional fields um, have a tremendous effect and impact on the lives of disabled people and so need to be conversant with major issues, you know, and need to know disabled people need to have disabled representation within them. And so I think the distinctive effect of design on disabled people is fairly well recognized in the design world, right? We, it's often addressed in a somewhat surface way through sort of like, you know, what we call like inspiration porn or like, you know, look at this amazing thing that changed someone's life. And well, you know, we know it's more complicated than just like introduce the object and the person's life is totally changed, right? So I think there is a conversation about disability in the design world. Often it lacks agency for disabled people. So it seems to be about designing for disabled people, like as a sort of charitable or humanitarian project rather than a core of, you know, creating equitable, just, or just well-designed things and spaces and interfaces. And so I think that same shift, as you just said, from sort of service to culture is also a design issue. Um, in many fields of like, why are we doing this? It's not to be a good person or to like help somebody, but it's because this is a significant portion of the population who deserve equitable access to the best of what we can do as designers. So I think that shift, you know, is, is a significant one. You know, the same thing that I talked about in terms of college professors overall, the, the levels of literacy around what are some of the key issues that the biggest issues for disabled people may be functional, but are likely also cultural. And so to try to address one without the other is likely to bring you to various misfires, right? And disconnections. I, I think there's more and more integration of disability into broader calls for design justice. Um, I, uh, I think you were using that as sort of a keyword, right? Um, which is fantastic and is really exciting because I think the key again to see disability is not, you know, disability access, not as a functional add-on or like a checklist, but as a core part of design philosophy is important. So a lot of that just comes down to like, when do we learn about this in school? Do we learn about this solely through sort of heroic acts of designers, or do we learn about this as like a form of access within our own programs, you know, whenever I speak at design schools, I always try to sort of turn the conversation back on them to say, it's like, what is the experience of disabled students in your program? Can disabled, can a disabled person, you know, variety of disabilities succeed in your program? You know, that's the first question to ask. 
not what are you doing for disabled people who are like out there somewhere, but what are you doing in here for disabled people? So I think a lot of it can start in sort of design schools. Many things that are designed are not made by designers. Mm -hmm. And so the feedback from users is, I think also a significant part is like, where are the opportunities for feedback and for quality feedback, not just one focus group, but for long-term sustained engagement, for paid engagement for disabled consultants and forms of design education that might reach populations that are not currently represented in the design world. What communities do you belong to and or support? Um, that's a good question. That's such a good question. Well, I'm glad to consider myself part of a disability community, um, both online and in person. You know, again, as I mentioned, I sort of worked through much of my work, you know, considering myself a non-disabled person. And I benefited so much from being in disabled spaces right, um, attending the Society for Disability Studies conference, which is like an academic um, conference was some of the first times that I was in a room with many disabled people who are, you know, using technologies, you know, communicating in different ways, like being in a shared space and working out their different access needs in a much more central way than many other environments where disability access is like a side issue or someone trying to be invited in or be included. So just being in those various communities, mostly academic, but also kind of local for me here in Chicago, I have a local sort of disability community and, and one that's um, particularly sort of oriented toward the arts and culture. And I'm fortunate to be in a city that has a really strong history of disability arts and culture and theater as well as visual arts. So, you know, the, the disability community is one that I'm part of. I'd say I'm also, you know, I'm, in conversation with other progressively minded faculty who are seeking to make change in the way that our universities operate. And a lot of that is talking to, I guess I should say, amplifying the voices of faculty of color, LGBTQ faculty, and, and scholars who may not be faculty. But I'd say, I would say a lot of it is like being in community with my fellow white professors and scholars who are seeking to improve our perspectives, you know, to provide channels for better conversation, to diminish our own prominence in the conversation when, when we can, as sort of uh, contradictory as that can be. We're in a time, right, of increased austerity in the university world. And so figuring out what our priorities are for those of us who have, you know, titled positions within universities is a big part of our responsibility. So I'd say that's a part of my community too, is like my comrades in the American Association of University Professors, which is like a union, although many of our campuses are not unionized, are sort of part of those conversations around equity more broadly in the university. So I'd say those are some of my communities. Right. As a concluding question, uh, what are you looking forward to in the future of your field? Uh, um, I, I'd say, you know, for me, uh, one of the, the exciting things I'm seeing is kind of a melding of practice and scholarship where practitioners are writing and researching and theorizing and, you know, historians and critics are 
are getting involved in projects, you know, like the pedagogical work that I mentioned or chances that I've had to collaborate with studio based faculty. And, you know, from a teaching standpoint, I mean, my biggest enthusiasm is just seeing more self-identified disabled people in design professions. So much of this advocacy and sort of conversational work is done by people like me, historians, critics, theorists, people who aren't trained in design fields. And so much authority comes from being a practitioner, as I sometimes encounter people who are like, well, do you really know what you're talking about? But also just, you know, as I mentioned, these professional training programs have historically been so exclusive and not just on the basis of disability. I mean, architecture, engineering, industrial design, we know to be fields that are still so behind in terms of just pure demographic diversity, right? And on every level, gender, to race, to disability and beyond. So seeing my students at the School of the Art Institute who are designers, who want to be designers, who are self-identified as disabled, who are equipped with you know, the, the politics and theory, but also with self-advocacy, seeing them be able to successfully enter into graduate programs and become practitioners, I think is the greatest thing that I have to look forward to of seeing their work um, as it develops. So that's been a great part of, of where I work and something I'm look, looking forward to in the future. Great. I completely agree. And I hope to see also the field of architecture progressing in that way. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really um, appreciate all the information you provided. It's very interesting and I hope to engage more with it as well. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Constructing Differences podcast. To find out more about this project, visit representationsofdifference.com or at representationsofdifference on Instagram. Special thanks to Jan Deirdrich for helping me through the IRB approval process, Dr. Olwan for provoking my thoughts on solidarity, and Professor Lori Brown for being my mentor on this project and so many others. Finally, thank you to all the participants who agreed to speak with me on Zoom throughout the month of April. Your time, words, and thoughts were greatly appreciated.